You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Should we take the Fed at their word? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Daily Briefing. Jim Bianco is with us today to talk through the Fed's hawkish commentary coming from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and the resulting bloodbath in U.S. equity markets. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Maggie. What are we going to talk about? I don't know. You know, I, I, I guess corn had a move today. Maybe we could discuss that or something like that. Yeah, right. not not much going on on a sleepy Friday. Oh, it's right. it's it's ugly for anybody looking at you know they're watching certainly the stock market for <clears throat> equity investors. So if you if you are lucky enough to be away from your screen on the beach, on a boat someplace, um, be happy there there. because we are, stay there. Exactly. (laughs) We're seeing a sea of red, the Dow down a thousand points, NASDAQ down nearly 4% as we close out here, S&P three and change. I mean, we really saw a, a, a big reaction in the stock market to, you know, what was a pretty uniform message coming from the Fed, including Jay Powell, who did speak, um, it, you know, have a speech in Jackson Hole. Jim, just just want to get your sort of take on what we heard from all the Fed governors. Uh, all the Fed governors, yeah, it's kind of like a championship boxing match. The undercard um, was basically leading up to, uh, you know, the main event uh, when uh, the heavyweight champ came out and gave his eight-minute speech. But they all said the same thing. And I think I will, I'll emphasize it with, with what Paul did. In an eight-minute speech, he basically had one message for us. There will be no pivot. There will be no pivot no matter what. Stock market could fall apart. Economy could crash. The Fed will not pivot. Now, they may stop raising rates, but they're not going to cut rates. And I think that that message was received loud and clear by the stock market. And we found out just how much people were banking on the idea that there'd be a pivot. Yeah. So so do you think that the reaction we are seeing is a repricing of that, or do you think we have a combination here where we have maybe low volumes because of the summer? Um, I think at this point, you know, we did more than a 38.2% retracement of the entire rally from mid-June, and most of that came today, actually, yeah. that it's starting to look more like there was a bit of a repricing. As I look at my screen, we are going out on the lows of the day. Yeah. Uh, the momentum is so strong right now. Cryptos are getting crushed. That'll be the thing to watch over the weekend. Uh, for those who follow me on Twitter, I always post this every weekend that I think that Bitcoin is like a 24-7 VIX. If you want to know how we're going to open Sunday night, watch how crypto does. 
Last weekend, crypto got skunked over the weekend, and then we opened up down 70 handles on the S&P. And I think that that'll tell you this, the, the tale of the tape. And I think that's what we're going to see is we're going to continue to see lower prices. So to your question, yes, I do think it is a bit of a repricing. And there's also a signal in there too. And the signal is, yeah, you could spend your time looking at companies, looking at fundamentals. You could spend your time looking at cash flows and products and positioning and narratives. Mm. But at the end of the day, this market's all about liquidity. And liquidity starts with the Fed. And the Fed merely said, we're not going to be putting it back. We're not going to be putting back liquidity if the market falls. And that was big enough to give you down nearly 3.4% on the S&P today. That's quite a move for the Fed just saying, we're not going to cut rates next year. But we're also, we all knew that they weren't done hiking rates. Yeah. The excellent point about crypto, Jim. And you know, I, I I love that you made it because some one of our one of our uh, community members tweeted out today, everything's correlated. You know, and we've been saying that too. There aren't any silos. I mean, all of these things uh, either reflect each other or are signaling um each other right now. Interesting though, as we were looking at the the sell-off and and you know, the important point listening is Jim's looking at this accelerate into the close. You didn't see any buyers come in at all. In fact, you saw people starting to um, to bail out, even those who had held on. So that's never a good sign, right? When you see that accelerated selling into the close. Um, but the VIX is at 25. It, it's up 18% for sure, but still at a pretty low level. And you didn't see the sort of outsized reaction in the treasury market. If you look at the 10-year, yields are still hugging right around 3%. Why do you think that is? Well, on the VIX, I think that's a fair signal. What you really want to see is you want to see some form of a capitulation or panic in the market to tell you we're at a low. That'd be the VIX spiking over 30 or something mm -hmm. like that. If the VIX wants to remain calm, good, we'll take it down 3.5% on Monday. And if it wants to stay calm, we'll take it down 3.5% on Tuesday. And we'll just keep going until it finally throws up on itself, and then you'll have a low. So that's the way I've always looked at the, um, the, the, the volatility measures, that they are Good when they spike, then they finally tell you panic is hit. And if this is an orderly decline, then we'll continue this on Monday. Treasury. Right. Well, that, so that's a that's important note. <laughs> that's an important note. That, yes. So the fact that yes. it didn't spike today is telling you that we don't have the capitulation and we are probably likely if, in for some pain won't come Monday. Right. right. You know, um, you know, to quote Eddie Murphy from the movie Trading Places, if this is fine, then I'll do some more of it. Uh and that's what we're going to get if the market if the market wants to be complacent as a measure of a 25 VIX, then we'll get more of this. Treasuries. There's two things going on in the treasury market. On the front end of the yield curve, the two-year note almost made a new high yield for the year. It came within less than a basis point at today's high. Closed around 339, 340. The high print of the year was back on June 14th at 345. Those yields are looking to be going higher and sticking with the front end of the yield curve. You saw somewhat of a repricing uh, in the Fed fund futures market. You've now got better than a 50% chance the Fed is going to raise 75 basis points in September. It's only around 60%, but it's still north of 50. That would bring the funds rate to three to three and a quarter on September. But what also has happened is the November meeting is now approaching 50% that they would raise rates an additional 50 basis points in the November meeting. Mm. That gets the funds rate to 350 to 375 two days after Halloween. That would far and away be the highest point in the yield curve 
unless the rest of yields start moving higher between now and then. And certainly, I think the front end is going to move there. You could see the two-year note in the high threes, maybe approaching 4%. The 10-year note will probably more reflect beliefs on the economy. Mm. It won't go up as much. The yield curve is going to get even more inverted than it is right now. And that is a signal of a slowdown in the economy and a potential recession that is only going to grow. And if we do wind up November 2nd, that the highest single yield on the entire yield curve is the Fed fund futures as high as 350 to 375, that's another classic signal that the economy is in a full-blown recession. So I want to continue around the asset classes because I think it's really important if there's a if there's a repricing going on. So the dollar rebounded after the hawkish comments. We had seen, you know, the dollar's been strong um in some cases, you know, unprecedented or certainly you know, stronger than anything we've seen generationally. It took a little bit of a pause as everyone was thinking about the fact the Fed may be cutting rights next year, resumed its upward trend. And Luke Roman tweeted out uh today, in my opinion, the DXY will go up until the Fed blinks or breaks the U.S. Treasury market again, like it did in the third quarter of 2019. First of all, do you expect the dollar to continue to go up? And talk to me about the breaking the Treasury market. Yeah, so I do expect the dollar. I think Luke's right, except I would argue that the answer is they're not blinking. Mm. They're breaking something. Mm. And it's going to have to be something big and something significant, because that's what Paul told us. And so, um, you know, if we blow up a couple of hedge funds, you know, don't even get Paul out of bed at that point. You know, blow up J.P. Morgan. Maybe you could you can uh, call him at three in the morning. Uh, of course, but we've being seen what happens when I is that true, though, Jim, because we've seen. Listen, the Fed said today very clearly uh, we're in for pain. Consumers are in for pain. The economy's in for pain. You know, labor market. We know that, that they're 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 hoping to pull asset markets down. They they want to kill demand. They have to, if they're going to get inflation, but do they want to break the financial system? Do they want to th- start to see hedge funds start failing and the treasury market seize up? Because that creates a whole domino effect that seems to run out of the control of central banks. If, no, if they the don't past wanna, is any gauge. No, they don't want to break it. They don't want to break it. And they don't even want to met up pain. But what they want to do is they want to get rid of inflation. Now, there comes risks with it, and that's one of the risks. I don't think if if the answer is, well, the Fed can't keep raising rates because some hedge fund might have a bad year, tough. They're going to keep raising rates. They're going to risk that. And that's why I said they're going to have to break things before we continue the, for them to blink. Because when I said the Fed was going to pivot, that was the message today. That was, you know, part of that message is they're not blinking. Today in ja- in Wyoming right now, I think they're happier now at 4 p.m. Eastern than they were at 8 a.m. Eastern that the stock market is down 3.3%. People listening to us are probably not happier because they own, they own assets, but they are. That's just what they want. Now, if it gets completely out of control, yeah, then maybe they might do something. But that's the point. It has to get completely out of control. So that's why I agree with Luke. They're going to have to break something. I don't think they're going to blink. They're going to have to break something. This is where the risk is, right? They want to break the things they feel they have control over and can address. There's a fine line between that and a more significant market event, though, isn't there? There is. There is. And I think what we also have to remember 
if you everything Paul said in his eight minute speech, and that I think was the most powerful part about it was he was eight minutes. It was four pages written, and it was on one subject. Basically, there will be no pivot. It's like Bart Mike Simpson dropped. at the chalkboard. There will be no pivot. There will be no pivot. Right. <laughs> Mike Drop left the, left the stage at that point. You know, he didn't want to address anything other than that. But I do think, though, that this is going to be the pro the, the, the way that they've got to go. They believe inflation is a bigger problem than a couple of thousand point down days in the stock market, than a couple of hedge funds having a problem. Because inflation impacts 100% of the population. Inflation devastates the bottom 40% of the population. Mm. They, he said that, and they need to get that under control. So if people that own assets, if, if people that have marginal jobs are at risk, their attitude is, that's just the price they got to pay. So if the answer is no, don't worry, they're not going to follow through on it. I think they made their message very clear. They intend on raising rates 50 or 75 this meeting and maybe 50 again in November. And they might push the funds rate to four or near four. And then all throughout 23, they're not going to bring it down at all. And if inflation is still stubborn, they might keep going from there. And I think that's the realization that came into the market. And yes, Raul's been talking about this as well, too. If the PMIs fall apart, if the economy falls apart, if jobs fall apart, they're going to keep raising rates. It's only if it gets to Great Recession 2008 epic proportions could we see them maybe back off because at that point, they've broken inflation. Mm-hmm. At that point, the economy's so bad, inflation is done anyway. But just because we're going to print low 40s PMIs or we revisit the June lows or maybe we print 50,000 jobs next Friday, you know, some kind of massive uh, miss in the jobs numbers, they're not going to they're not going to they're on course to continue to raise rates. They're not stopping. That's what I think the market heard today and why it had the reaction it did. The whole idea of a pivot is off the table and we're seeing how much the pivot mattered to the markets. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. So, you know, that puts us back on the sort of month-to-month inflation just being so drilled down into those inflation numbers because despite all their hawkish talk today, we did see the PCE, the personal consumption expenditure reading, and that's a favored inflation gauge for the Fed. It did go down. It's still at elevated levels. Absolutely. But it, but it yes. is trending down as we're starting to see some other things trend down. Do we know what level the Fed is willing to accept to declare that inflation is under control? Well, their stated level is 2% and that they're not going to stop until they believe that all of these metrics are headed towards 2% and that they're going to basically stay there at 2%. Now, you're right. Their favorite metric is PCE. That number's around 6 CPI is around eight and a half. 
Historically, CPI runs around half a percent more than PCE. So if they think that, you know, they're going to keep they're going to keep raising rates and be restrictive until we get to 2% on the inflation mm. rate, that's PCE inflation. That's about two and a half on the CPI rate. So they've got a ways to go. But yeah, I think that th that's what their stated goal is. Will they accept three, three and a half or something along those lines? Um, I'll take them at their word. The answer is no. They still believe that 2% is the long run goal for inflation. I don't. They do. And they're not going to stop until they get to this elusive 2% number. Andre, from the RV side, I think that answers your question. Um, he was asking, can the Fed pivot if the data for the economy would be bad enough, or are they determined to go with the hawkish tone until the end? Jim's read of this is until the end. So Bradley asking, you know, if we're talking about the Fed tightening until something breaks, what breaks first? Um, well, hopefully not the consumer. If we knew that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that's why you're laughing. I, but, if we knew that, then we'd have some yeah, good Yeah, exactly. I guess I guess I'm gonna I'm going to preface that call, comment or assume in that question that he means which financial market, right? Because you could argue, will it be the labor market that breaks, or would it be the energy markets that break? Um, in fact, you could argue that some of those markets have already broken to some degree. Um, would it be the import export market that would break? But let's talk about financial markets. Uh, I tweeted out earlier this week an update of the total return chart in the in the bond market that the, the global aggregate bond index is down more than 10% year on year. This is not only the worst year ever recorded in total return for losses in the bond market, it is far and away the worst year ever. And it is breaking things. It's breaking housing, which was what we're seeing with the spike rate up in mortgage rates. It's uh, I've argued even here on uh, the daily briefing that I think we're already in recession. I think the two negative quarters qualifies as a recession done conversation over. It is a it is a mild recession. It could wind up being something more than that. Check back in six months. But I think we already have one. That's a sane sign of something breaking. But I do think, though, that is if the Fed keeps going, if inflation stays a problematic and rates keep going up and the, those total return losses in the bond market keep going, that's where you're going to have problems. Remember about the bond market. Everybody hates it. It gives no yield. It has no potential for an 80% return. It's not ARC. The only thing the bond market can do is wreck everything. And that's what you have to be careful about with the bond market. And I'm worried that what you could wind up having happen if inflation stays stubborn or the Fed continues on this and yields go up, it, you know, will the bond market give you an opportunity? No, but it'll wreck everything else. And, it, mm. that, and the bond market tends to do that at times which is why we pay pay attention to it, which is why, you know, Ralph calls it, you know, the market of truth. There's a lot of truth to calling it the market of truth because it has such an important, it's such an important cog in the entire financial system. So watch the bond market because it is having that epic year. It doesn't look like it might be done with that epic year right now. That's a great, that's a great, great point, Jim. And, you know, so many people, we've, there's been a lot of discussion, but, you know, usually when you're getting killed in stocks, bonds are the place where you can diversify, or that's what people had as a diversification for equities. Everything's going down in tandem. It's killing, it's killing professional managers, killing people who had that 60-40, you know, portfolio set up to, to protect themselves against tough years. Yeah, I, I met, you know, I, I think I may have even said it the last time I was on the daily briefing that I've, I was talking to 
a well-known um, bond manager, and we were we were talking about the bond market and and you know at that point the total return for the global aggregate index was tw- down 12% for the year. I mean, its worst year ever was down two, and it was down 12% by June. And uh, he said to me, you know, if you would have told me in January that by June that the, the bond market will have lost one-eighth of its value, I would have said, you don't understand how the bond market works. It doesn't do that. Tech stocks do that. The bond market doesn't. But that's exactly what's happened. And I think that those that is a big ramification. Look at the look at the bank stocks. The bank stocks have been just getting hammered all year, especially foreign bank stocks, especially Japanese and European bank stocks. Again, because of the loss in the bond market. So it is that is. So why are we having this extraordinary year, Jim? I think what we're finally coming to grips with is this understanding that this is a post-pandemic economy. This means. All those people you hear that say when things return to normal, this is normal. Get used to it. There is no returning back to 2019. That is a different era. That's pre-pandemic. The post-pandemic world is a world of different consumption baskets. We consume more things. We consume less services, relatively speaking. Brittle supply chains that can't handle that shift in the consumption basket. Labor markets that what held down inflation for the last generation, and I'm channeling my inner Zoltan Pozar because he's been writing about this and I think he's been dead on, is it's been three things. It's been cheap labor through immigration has been holding down inflation. We don't have that. We have we have 5% wage growth. We have 3.5% unemployment. We have the best market for employees probably in at least a generation, if not more. Cheap goods from China. We're in the midst of having all kinds of political problems with China, and we're talking about reshoring. The cheap political goods are gone. And what was Europe's big advantage to hold down inflation? Cheap energy from Russia. They're no longer getting cheap energy from Russia. They're getting astronomical prices for natural gas, which they use for electrical generation. And they're looking at prices to heat their homes and keep the lights on that 30 or 40% of their populations cannot afford. So all of that is reversed. We're not going back to 2%. We might not be going back to 2% until we get some kind of another secular change in the economy. We're in a permanently higher 3 4 5% inflation world, and that means that the neutral funds rate might be 4 or 5 and the Fed's only halfway to neutral. And I think in a liquidity-driven market that was used to zero funds rate for 20 years and all of the leverage to tell them that, no, now neutral might be 4 or 5 and it might be that for many years, is a hell of an adjustment that markets are going to have to go through. And that's what I think we've been seeing this year with the epic decline in the bond market and what we've seen in the stock market. It's interesting. Uh, Andreas Stenelarsen had a conversation with Dario Perkins uh, just recently, and he also was toying with the idea that you know, things may be different now and maybe, you know, we can't necessarily look at track records, but but he had a sort of different take on it. And he was wondering um, if we shouldn't look at the past track record of the Fed when it comes to things like a hard or soft landing. Let's have a listen to a, a clip from that interview. You know, if you look at kind of history, um, you know, the odds of a soft landing would appear to be zero because we have very high levels of inflation 
very low levels of unemployment. You know, there's never been a soft landing in that type of environment. And that's, you know, what people like Larry Summers have been telling us for the past 18 months, that a soft landing is impossible. I actually think the odds aren't that bad. Um, you know, history isn't a good guide. And I hesitate to say this time is different. But, you know, we haven't had an economy like this before. You know, this is the weirdest economy I've seen in my career. And I've been doing this 20 years with these massive distortions. And if, you know, the, the recession risk, the hard landing risk is that central banks are just freaking out about inflation. So, you know, if we keep getting nasty inflation numbers, they're going to push us into recession because they'll just hike and hike and hike until we get that recession. And clearly, you know, from the Fed, 75 basis points every month is a clear route to hard landing. But I think, you know, we can get some better inflation data. We must get some inflation data for any chance of a soft landing. You know, if the inflation data starts to come off and we've had one month of good data, that's not enough. You know, policymakers will be looking for minimum three months of improvement in inflation. If we get that, then I think that central bankers will start to calm down a little bit more and then we'll be on a more gradual tightening path. And then I think, you know, it, it, there is a chance that we get that, that sort of softish landing. That full interview is available on our website. Um, and we should note that Dario and Andreas spoke before that conversation happened before Powell's speech today. Um, but Jim, it's it's an interesting point. And, and I don't think a soft landing is anybody's base case that I've spoken to. But are we when we think about probabilities, are we not assigning a high enough probability or chance that they might just make it happen? Yeah, I think a lot of people are not assigning a high probability to a soft landing, and I'm not either. And, you know, that, that always perks up my ears. Well, if this the one thing we've written off, maybe we should pay attention to. Right, but let me, yeah. Oh, let me offer this. What do you need for a soft landing? You need low economic volatility. That's not possible with high inflation. If you believe that my whole riff before about that all that we are in a secular change in the economy. Look, that's a guess or that's a projection or a forecast on my part. But if that's wrong and we do return to some kind of pre-pandemic low 2% world on inflation, yes, you'll have a you'll have a soft landing. But without it, you cannot have anything that looks like a soft landing with 6 or 5 or 4% inflation because soft landings also need low economic volatility. They cannot be jumping around. The economy cannot be jumping around all over the place. So it really comes down to how much do you think this is a pre or post pandemic world? I think it is a big post pandemic world. And because of that, I, 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 I'm with the crowd that puts low probabilities on a soft landing. Um, I don't know if you all can hear that, but we have some we have some noise coming through Gremlins somewhere. Someone's mic is open. I don't think it's ours though, Jim. So um, no, it's not mine. But we'll we'll figure it. Yeah, we'll figure it out. But okay, so in that environment, uh, uh, we have a question from JJ on Twitter. How do how do tips do in this environment? Tips are Treasury inflation protected securities. You have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Now the whole idea behind a tip security, for those of you who don't know about these, are real rate bonds. If you're in Europe is they will pay you an interest rate, which is the real rate, plus the price will get a, a change, which they call accretion, based on CPI. So it's, an in, it's a bond that's indexed to the price of CPI, so it's indexed to inflation. Now, what we're finding out about these bonds is they're heavily distorted. 
Pre-pandemic 2020, the Fed owned about 8% of all tips outstanding. They own about 27% of all tips outstanding. What I've argued about with the tips market is people look at this market. This is the one thing that everybody focuses on. Well, there's not going to be an inflation problem. They've been for a year and a half. There's not going to be an inflation problem because the tips market has not really priced in higher inflation. Well, two things about that. One, it's usually not a good indicator of what will happen. It's a good indicator of what people think, but it doesn't usually mean because they think it, it is what comes out to pass. Second of all, because the Fed owns so much of it and they're doing QT, it tends to be a better measure of liquidity because the biggest player in the tips market is the Federal Reserve. If the Federal Reserve is no longer going to buy those and they're going to start and, they're, and, they're, and we're going to have to find other buyers, it is going to suffer from liquidity. Now, liquidity and inflation are somewhat related. So I've said about tips, they're a perfectly fine instrument to play. But you don't play them because you think inflation is going to go up or down. You play them based on liquidity, whether or not the Fed or some big buyer is going to step up and buy them or sell them, understanding you've lost your biggest buyer in that market right now. And so it's distorted like a number of other markets have been distorted. So be careful with the tips market. It might not be what you think it is. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I'm so glad uh, that we got that question. Thank you so much. Uh, we have another one from Salage87. I don't know if I'm saying that right. On the RV site, which sectors will perform best under these circumstances, or is it just best to stick with cash? Well, it, if you're going to look at sectors that are going to perform best, you're going to have to think about what is it that I've argued, and I'll use my, my point of view, higher inflation and a lower growth, a stagflationary environment. So defensive sectors will be very well. Uh, consumer staples, that kind of thing will help you as well. And in sectors that would benefit from increased inflation, energy, I still have of the opinion, you know, that the, the, the most oversold market right now and one of the most hated contrarian markets right now, uh, where's Jared Dillian? Jared, it's energy right now. Everybody's pissing all over the, over the crude oil market. I think that that market is poised for another big rally um, up just from a sentiment standpoint, basic materials, industrials, anything you can drop on your toe, that's a good place to be because usually they will benefit from a higher inflation environment. That's the best way you could go with this. But look, I know I got my bear suit on here. You, you know, we might continue to see from here on out, you're going to pick all the right sectors and you've lost less money than the index. Mm. But I don't know if we're ready to say, oh, no, industrials and energy are going to continue to go higher while everything else goes lower. That, right. I this know is that where was, time horizon matters, right? If you've got right. a shorter time horizon, there might be a puke down that's not going to spare anything if you have a longer time, a little bit of a longer time horizon. Right. And so if you're if you're asking where do I go to make money, um, probably in those plays. Otherwise, cash will not lose your money. And look, in the first half of this year, cash was one of the best performing asset classes, if not the best, because it didn't lose you money. Everything else, stocks, bonds, everything else lost you money. Yeah. So, Jim, if we if we think about 
sort of, you know, parting thoughts for people as we end out August and, and kind of gear up for what is going to be kind of a really critical fall period here. What do you want to leave people with? What thoughts do you want to leave people with? All right. I'm bearish because I'm thinking that this economy is going through transition. Do not confuse that with dystopian. That means it's different. That means it needs to change. That means that certain investments have to be made and that we are still operating under this idea that it's 2019 and that it's not 2022, about to be 2023. That will present itself with a lot of opportunities as that change comes along. And that change is not such a bad thing. I know that Rawls used the example that this is like the 1940s, the late 1940s after World War II. I agree with him that it is. But there's a huge difference. In 1947, three years later, no one was complaining, when am I going to get my job back making fighter planes and Sherman tanks? We all knew that era was over and that we weren't going back there. But in 2022, we hear the Stephen Rosses who owns Related and Hudson Yard saying, oh, yeah, everybody's going to come back to the office. And we hear people talk about when the economy returns to normal. It's like asking to go back to 1944. This is a different era. They, we had this in the 40s. We had a recession in 46, 47. We had a recession in 49, 50 as well. We had a lot of economic volatility. And that set the stage for a reorientation of the economy that we boomed in the 50s and into the early 60s. I think that's is something similar to that. But that reorientation process is going to be volatile and take time. The biggest problem we have now is in 1947, no, like I said, no one wanted their job back making Sherman tanks. But in 2022, there are people, there's a story today in the New York Post that Jamie Dimon is hammering his employees to get back into the office five days a week, that we still want to pretend it's 2019 and we still want to go back there. As soon as we let that go and say, this is a new era, we have to spend money to fix the supply chain. We have to understand what it is consumers want. So inventories are not bloated at retailers because they stock the shelves with the wrong stuff. We have to understand how this new economy is going to work with the new power that labor has over capital or over management, if you will. Then we could get about restructuring the economy. But if we want to continue to argue whether or not this is 2019 or 2022, we're going to stretch this out for a long period of time. So we need to understand this is a different world. This is a world where cheap energy is no longer the case Russia is not going to be giving gas, natural gas, to Europe for next to nothing anymore. BMW and Mercedes, it's your biggest input to making cars even more than labor is your energy input. You've got a huge problem right now because your energy costs are going to go through the roof. We're never going to have cheap labor coming, flowing over the borders anymore. We're not going to be able to get cheap stuff from China like we thought we were in 2019. The sooner we understand that, the sooner we recognize it's not terrible It just needs to be adjusted, and we need to start the adjustment process instead of waiting for the past to start reasserting itself. So, uh, yeah, I think this is a period of opportunity, but this opportunity means change, and change means some markets are going to go up and down, and they're going to have to readjust, and we're not going to like it. This is not 2010 to 2020 anymore. That was an era that ended. Jim, I'm so glad that you ended it on that sort of larger view because I think it can get lost. And I and I like that, you know, I like hearing there's opportunity. In the shorter term, after listening to you, my takeaway is while that's out there and that's an important theme we have to think about, it's going to be rough sledding 
in the short term, uh, stocks are going to move lower. Bonds might have more pain ahead too. People are going to have to really brace themselves for that and get in a defensive position. And to answer the question we started the show with, yes, take the Fed at their word. They're going to keep hiking. Until they say otherwise, he's, you know, eight minute speech, four pages. He couldn't have been clearer as to what his message was. Don't overread it. All right. It's going to be a it's going to be a tough week, but we appreciate all the wisdom as we head into the weekend. We have a lot to think about. Jim, it's always great to catch up with you. Thank you. Enjoy it. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for the great questions. We'll see you again next week. Have a wonderful weekend. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.